let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, we're going to continue this morning our study through the book of Exodus. And we're going to cover the entire the entirety of chapter 6, though we're not going to read all of chapter 6, because a big chunk of 6 is a, a curtailed genealogy. And um, not that it's not valuable, we will talk about why it's there uh, as far as taking up time in our worship service, I think it could be um, probably, should probably be left off of our reading. By the way, um, I've been getting some very good questions from uh, some of our folks as we've been working through uh, the book of Exodus, and it occurred to me while I was getting some of those questions that many of you have access more and more to resources. Uh, The digital libraries that you can now collect uh, are quite profound, and as uh, we've run into these things in Exodus, I will say, well, you can take this any one of two or three ways. In talking with you about those, I realize that a lot of you have access to those same resources. And so what I've started doing is putting little research leads. Uh, You'll see a name and a page number. And so if uh, that subject interests you and uh, you want to see, read more about that, uh, it's possible that you guys have the same uh, resources and If you don't, I'm happy to let you use some of my books to see that as well. Uh, I really do appreciate the questions. I don't want that to sound negative at all. Um, I've really loved hearing those questions, and what I want to do is give you avenues of further research uh, moving forward if you would like that. So uh, without further ado, let's pick up our reading in Exodus chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Moses spoke to Moses, I'm sorry, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Let's go down to verse 29. On that day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, 
the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Father, give us grace to understand this passage. And if there are any in here who are brokenhearted, downhearted, downcast, like Moses and these people were, may we find encouragement in what you tell both Moses and the people. May we look to your sovereign works in the past and to your great promises in the future. And may that give us encouragement and wings to live out today for your glory. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, morale in an army or navy or in armed forces is a very real thing. Nations ignore troops' morale to their own peril. It was reinforced yesterday when all the drama in Russia played out. It's clear that morale in that army is low. Nations have spent incredible amounts of money and attention and time dedicated to the troops' morale. In World War II, the Germans, for example, invested huge resources of capital just to make sure their troops received Christmas presents on time. The French had big wagons of red wine that they would transport to the troops all across the front. And the United States, being like we are, took the morale of the soldiers to a whole new stratosphere. We had the USO. We spent millions and millions of dollars on traveling bands of Hollywood personas and dancers and singers. We built ball fields and movie theaters. In some cases, we built those things before we even built the airfields to support the troops. Morale is a very important part of warfare. Well, what we see in this passage today is low morale among God's people. And if there were a way that we could index the morale of the Israelites, we could index the morale of Moses, this is the low point in the book of Exodus. It seems so far that there's only promise, there's only splash, there's only dash, but no substance to anything that God is saying. And what we're going to see here in Exodus 6 is not an improvement on their conditions, but the way in which God deals with brokenhearted people. When you get discouraged, when you get down, when you're downcast, and maybe you have good reason to be, here is how God comforts his people in trying times. So that's what we're going to cover today. God binds the brokenhearted. Let's get a little review before we jump into Exodus 6 this morning. Moses accepts God's commission, and he encourages the people. He tells them, God has heard you, and those people believe. They fall on their faces, and they worship God, and everything seems to be going in the right direction. Even though God told Moses that Pharaoh would be resistant, that he would harden his heart, that this would not be a straight path, I think we all kind of hope for the best and maybe forget about the worst. And Moses goes to Pharaoh with an extremely reasonable request. All I am asking 
is that you let the people go for a three-day festival. That's all. A three-day festival. All of our people, all of our stuff, all of our animals, and we're going to go worship the Lord, and we'll come back. And Pharaoh says, absolutely not. In fact, Pharaoh explodes into anger. He makes false accusations of Moses and of the people of Israel, and he begins to lay extraordinary burdens on the people of Israel. They're not even allowed to have straw in their brick anymore, which reinforced it, made it stronger. He said, you're lazy. And so now they have to go and gather an inferior product. It takes them longer to make something that isn't as good. There's tremendous pressure from all over Egypt to resupply this needed building element. There's pressure that's mounting and Israel's foremen and supervisors are whipped in public places. They're flogged. Their flesh is torn off their backs simply because they cannot meet Pharaoh's unreasonable demands. So they send people to Pharaoh to plead with him. They think perhaps he's a reasonable man. He's anything but. He again explodes on them in anger. They leave Pharaoh's presence. And we end chapter 5 with a whole bunch of people angry at each other. Pharaoh is angry at Israel. Israel is angry at Moses. And Moses is angry at God. And we saw last week that there's this cycle of anger that's sort of building on itself. And finally, when we get to chapter 6, God begins to speak into this situation of discouragement and despair, and God is going to make several declarations. Perhaps you noticed as we were reading that there is a string of declarations, and the Lord said, and the Lord said. In fact, in Hebrew, it's all the more apparent. Sometimes Hebrew verbs have a little and on the front of them, but in most cases in this passage, there is a double one, and also and also, and moreover, and on top of that, God begins to pile statement upon statement as he attempts to encourage his people who for good reason are brokenhearted. God does not, God is very empathetic in this passage, actually. And he begins to speak to their hearts. And we have three points that I want us to bring out from this chapter. The first one is that God replies to Moses. Our second point is that God reassures Israel. And our third point is that God recommissions Moses. God replies to Moses, reassures Israel, and recommissions Moses. And that will follow the outline of the text. So our first point, God replies to Moses. This is in verses 1 through 5. Moses, at the end of chapter 5, has just turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. We gave Moses some credit for doing the right thing, but in all the wrong ways. The psalmist chastises himself. He says, Lord, I acted like a beast in your presence. And I think Moses would say the same thing here. And God begins to talk. He says, and the Lord said to Moses, Look at verse 2. God spoke to Moses. Go down to, um, let's see here. 
verse 6. He says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out. Go down to verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, God begins to give him a string of speeches. I want us to see that God promises present action. He says right here in the first verse, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. God says this marks a turning point. And indeed, the book of Exodus turns on chapter 6. How many of you, when you get a, a book to read, you see the author's foreword, and then you see the prelude, and the, those pages are listed with like Roman numerals. And the regular numbers don't start till chapter 1. How many of you skip over the foreword and the prelude to chapter 1? How many of you? Okay, most of us. Okay. Well, this is the prelude. This is the end of the prelude of the book of Exodus. Chapters 1 through 6 set the scene. They set the stage. And then action begins to happen in chapter 7 moving forward. God also promises the power of a strong hand. He says, with a strong hand, I'm going to deliver you. This strong hand is uh, obviously a figure of speech. But it's something that will, be some, it, it will become a theme as we go forward. In chapter 13, God talks about the strong hand that he used to deliver his people. In chapter 14, Moses uses his hand to stretch over the sea. In fact... All through the plagues, Moses is stretching forth his hand, sort of as an extension of God's hand being stretched out. God is, as it were, standing over Egypt, and he's saying, I am now extending my hand out in power to begin to do something on behalf of my people. He promises that presently he will begin to do certain things. The next thing I want us to see is that God then reminds Moses of his covenant promises. Look at verse 4. He says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. He says that, moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And this is what I want you to say to the people of Israel. Back in verse 3, he says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. God is reminding Moses of all the past that he has with these people. Now, there's a few things we need to cover very quickly here. In verse 3, God says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as God Almighty, this is the word El Shaddai, or the phrase rather, but by my name I did not make myself known to them. This is a bit confusing, okay? Read simply in its bare sense, it's this. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they only knew me as El Shaddai, but I'm coming to you as Yahweh. Well, there's some major problems with that idea. If you've picked up your Bible to read it, you'll know that beginning in Genesis chapter 2, 
Before Abraham even was, we see all these references to Yahweh. So it seems, oh, and then we have all these other people who began to call on the name of Yahweh. So it's apparent that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did know the name Yahweh, and that much is clear. So how do we explain this verse in chapter 3? Well, there's two explanations that I think are satisfying. The first is that this could actually be a rhetorical question. Okay? Um, I picked up, oh, I would say three, maybe four, real genuine Hebrew scholars on this point. And they all agreed that this can very easily and justifiably be translated as a question. In the original language, there are no punctuation marks like we have in English. You have to rely on the words that the author uses. And they demonstrated with sufficient rigor that this could very easily be translated as a question. It would read like this. It would read, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. Did I not also make myself known to them as Yahweh? Okay, That's, that's very possible. The other possibility is that what God is saying is, they may have known my name, but I am going to make myself known personally and experientially to them in a way they heretofore did not know. Now, depending on the commentator you pick up, you'll see one of those two explanations. And I find both of them to be satisfactory. Which one is which, I can't totally say. But either one, I think, is fine. Either God is saying, didn't I not reveal myself to them, and that fits perfectly well with the context, or God is saying, I'm going to do something new and make myself known to you in an all-new and experiential way. So even though they knew my bare name, they did not experience me the way that you are about to experience me. God also is reminding Moses that the slavery that they're enduring was part of the promise that God made in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. God had predicted that they would go down and suffer, and God had predicted that he would deliver them. In other words, if I could put it in modern vernacular, God would be saying to Moses, yo, this is all part of the plan. Relax. I got this. It's all part of the plan. In fact, if you just want to put, yo, that's all part of the plan in your, in your margin, go for it. Well, that's what God is reminding Moses. This was all part of the plan. And Moses, you're... You're losing sight of that. You're losing sight of the fact that I know the end from the beginning. You're losing sight of this notion that I told you this would happen. Peter argues this way in the New Testament. He says, Christian, don't, I'm sorry, this is uh, James. He says, James, don't act surprised when you're persecuted by the world. (laughs) That's what happens to Christians. Don't, Don't be alarmed by that. This happens. God is reminding Moses of what he said. Now, God turns his attention and begins to reassure Israel. As we read through this, look at verses 6 through 9. Okay? 
between the start of verse 6 and the end of verse 9, I want you to notice that God makes eight individual promises. Let's read them. Count them up in your mind. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring out from under the burden, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's one. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That could be considered another one or part of the first one. Number four, I will take you to be my people. Number five, I will be your God. Number six, and you shall know that I am the Lord who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Number six, I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Seven, I will give it to you for a possession. I may have lost track of my numbers there, numbered one twice. There's eight in there. I counted them up a couple different times. You could go eight or nine. doesn't matter. There's a lot of them. God begins making promises. But the thing I wanted you to notice about these promises is in Hebrew, they are all past tense. It's hard to bring out in English. But it would read like this if you read it literally. I am the Lord... I brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from slavery, and I redeemed you with an outstretched arm. They all read past tense. And this is actually a special thing that Moses is doing. It's a special thing that this is a unique promise where God is expressing facts which are imminent, and therefore, in God's mind, already accomplished. Now, we have something in our sort of colloquial usage here, our our common everyday words. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. How How many of you have ever been told, the check's in the mail? Like, you've heard that, the check's in the mail, okay? How many of you have said the check's in the mail, okay? I won't ask you to raise your hand if you said check's in the mail, but the check was actually still in your checkbook, okay? But imagine... You have written the check, you put it in the envelope, you put the stamp on it, and I know that nobody does this anymore except for me, but you put it in the mailbox, put the flag up, the next day it disappears, the person that is owed the money contacts you or you contact them and you're like, it is, it's done. From your perspective, you can do no more, can you? It's on the way. Payment is on the way. Maybe a more modern way to put it would be, I already clicked send on the e-payment. It will take 24 hours to process. And we're in that little intervening window now. It's done. I can do no more. It's out of my hands. That's in a sense what God is saying here. It's, I have so determined to do this that it's a fact of accomplishment Your deliverance is at hand. It's done. And I want you to believe that I'm going to do all these things. Because indeed, I've already determined to do it. These promises can be delivered in three categories. God promises to free them. These are slaves. During the Civil War, the Union Army ran into a problem they didn't anticipate. They should have anticipated it, but they didn't. They thought when they went through the South that the slaves living on the land would continue to till the land and would stay home. The slaves didn't do that, by and large. And 
following along in the wake of the Union Army was a growing horde of freed slaves. Now, they hadn't technically been freed yet, but by their reckoning, they had been. And so they're just following right along. There they go. <laughs> they are free. And they were saying, tell us where to go. And they were breathing for the first time what it was like to go wherever they wanted to go, to live however they wanted to live, to do whatever they wanted to do. And for people who are not accustomed to those sorts of decisions, that is rarefied air. And God says, I'm going to set you free. I'm going to bring you out of the land. I'm going to deliver you. He uses a special word. He says, I'm going to redeem you. This word has two meanings. It can mean to buy somebody that has had to sell themselves into slavery. Or it can mean to take up somebody's case and avenge the wrongdoings that they have suffered. You see something bad happening to a loved one, and they're powerless to stop it. And you, with your great resources, come alongside them, pluck them out of that situation, and punish the one who was harming the people that you love. That's the same word for redeem. And God says, that's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to pay the price for you and avenge you. I'm going to bring you out into absolute freedom. The second thing that he says is, I'm going to adopt you. He says, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to take you. I'm going to be your God. I'm, you're going to be my people, and you will know me personally. This promise meets its fulfillment later in the book of Exodus. When God appears to the people of Israel and they fall down and they worship. Everything up to that point is a prelude to knowing and worshiping God. Is a foretaste of what he'll be like. God says, I'm going to buy you. I'm going to avenge you. I'm going to free you and liberate you. And then I'm going to know you. I'm going to come into relationship with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And this becomes... A phrase, this is the first time it's used, this becomes a phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament, in fact, into the New. It's a special relationship that God is promising. And then, okay, now let, let's stop here, okay? Before we advance to the next slide, okay? I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on Dirk, for example. He's my, he's my prayer partner this quarter, and I'm disappointed to lose Dirk as my prayer partner, but excited for whoever is next. Okay? I want you to imagine that I make Dirk mad at me. Okay? Somehow, some way, I make Dirk mad. And he decides to get even with me. He sneaks over to my house, and he slashes all of my tires. Okay? And I catch Dirk on the video camera. I confront him with the evidence. Dirk, why would you even think of doing such a terrible thing? Okay. I confront him with it. And he says, you just made me mad, that comment. And he apologizes. He says, I'll pay for new tires. 
And I say, okay. What if I, how many of you would fault me if I said, Dirk, please don't talk to me for a while. What you've done is hurt me. Don't talk to me for a while. How many of you would fault me for that? Some of you would. <laughs> but, but imagine I said, Dirk, you're forgiven. Not only have I already bought a new set of tires, I, I've actually bought new sets of tires for your whole family. They're waiting for you down at Big O, okay? Head down there and pick them up. You would say, well, that's pretty gracious. <laughs> well, this is what God says he's going to do. He's going to deliver them. He's going to free them. He's going to enter a relationship with them. But then he's not going to cut it off. He's actually going to enrich them. He's going to give them an inheritance. Provide for them. No longer will you be forced to tend the property of another person and be at their whims. I'm going to give you your own land, your own inheritance. He's going to stipulate later. Don't let your inheritance go into another family. Buy it back if you must. Don't sell what I'm giving you. It's yours to be your family's forevermore. God says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bring you into the land. I'm going to give you the land. And forevermore, this land will provide for you. It will yield for you. Don't give it away. Keep it for yourself. It's yours. It's amazing. God promises to free, to adopt, and to provide an inheritance. Our third point is this. God recommissions Moses. I want us to notice, look with me at verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now go down to verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now go down to verse 29. The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. So here, one, two, three times, which is a Hebrew writer's way of putting an exclamation mark on it. God reaffirms his commission to Moses to go tell Pharaoh everything he told to tell him. There's also an indication, clearly in the text, that Moses is still putting up a fight. Moses is still discouraged. Moses says, God, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. If the people of Israel don't listen to me, how is it that Pharaoh will listen to me? I may have skipped over this when we were going through it, but Moses goes and tells the people of Israel these eight promises. And it says they didn't listen to Moses because it says they had a fainting spirit. Now, the, the word that they didn't listen to him because their spirit was broken, it's the only time in the Old Testament that word is used. But it seems to come from a family of words that means chaff. 
You guys know this word. Like the wind, like the chaff, that the wind drives away. The way the Israelites harvested things is, imagine, you know the little light skin on the peanuts that you get if you buy the wrong canister, and instead of getting the salted, dry roasted peanuts, you get the cocktail peanuts, and they got that nasty skin on the outside of them. You guys know what I'm talking about? Imagine taking the peanuts and, and getting all of that skin off and the peanuts and the skin all laid together in one pile. You take them outside on a windy day and you throw the whole lot up into the air. What happens to the skins? They go flying and the peanuts just fall to the ground. The bits that go flying is chaff. And God says that that's how the people's spirit was. He's brokenhearted, broken, weak, ineffectual, driven, hurled about. And because of this deep discouragement, they wouldn't believe Moses. And God has to tell Moses three different times, go back and Tell Pharaoh, go back until the people and Moses begins to put up a fight. But how is it that they're supposed to listen to me when I, don't, I apparently don't have any persuasive powers? I talk to them and they do the opposite. I talk to Pharaoh and he hardens. I'd like us to notice that something changes here with an unlikely place. Look with me at verse 14. Moses begins to recount his family history. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, the sons of Simeon later on. These are the names of the sons of Levi, verse 16. Moses begins to tell his genealogy. He descends not from a firstborn or from a secondborn, but from a thirdborn. Furthermore, Moses' line doesn't trace to Levi's firstborn. We're not going to read the whole thing, but the genealogy that Moses tells is deliberately unimpressive. Moses is saying, I'm a nobody. My brother Aaron is a nobody. And he's giving that backdrop so that he can say, but God is a somebody. This was not the product of man. This wasn't the product of some great human leader. God started using unlikely people in unlikely places in life at the worst of times when morale was at its lowest. God began to move and triumph and God is the champion. Moses begins to paint a picture of God's sole determination to act. Look at look what we have here. Well, look at the scene. 
Pharaoh is sitting on his throne. I don't know if Pharaoh had beady little eyes and rubbed his hands together, but let's pretend for a moment that he did. Pharaoh's sitting on his throne, and he thinks he's won. He yelled at Moses. He yelled at the men. He put in this program where the Israelites have to go get their own stuff. And you know what he hasn't heard since he did that? He hasn't heard a single complaint. Not from them, anyway. Maybe his bricklayers are complaining. But as far as Pharaoh's concerned, this has come off beautifully. He's consolidated his power. He's hurting a, a minority group that he wants to hurt anyway and limit their population growth. Pharaoh thinks he's come off great. The people, they refuse to hear because of their chaff-like spirit. They're discouraged. They don't want Moses to intervene anymore. Maybe this storm will blow over. They can't hear anymore. They're blinded and deaf because of their hardship and their brokenheartedness. Moses, he can't get over his own insecurities, his own deficiencies. He just keeps going back time and again to his speech problem, whatever that might be. Here, evil seems to be winning. And good is discouraged and depressed and down. And is looking dark. But none of that matters. None of it matters. Because God says, now you will see. Now is the perfect time for me to show my power and show that I'm acting on my own accord now it is time for you to see how my mighty hand is going to reach out and rescue my people, and bring them to me. From chapter 7-1 forward, it is a story of God's triumph. But he had to get it good and low first. And Moses is taking pains to show that God himself was the one who engineered everything that we're about to read. I have three applications I'd like us to see as we wrap up this morning. Number one, we're rarely privy to God's central concerns. We're rarely privy to God's central concerns. Moses didn't know what God was up to. One day, Job was having a feast. He was having it was a high point in his life. His family was gathered together. And tragedy struck. He was on top of the world, and now he's as low as can be. And it probably wasn't until years after the fact that God began to unveil to Job that this was part of a contest. And Job, Job was the figure of God's creation that God wanted to display in front of the world. God said, I've made a trophy of grace in Job, and I want everybody to see it. The trouble from Job's perspective is he didn't know that that's what he was at the time. Now, Job did have some things that God had to deal with with Job, but through it all, 
God preserved Job and held him up. And Job didn't know why. God has central concerns with the trial that you're going through. He's got plans and purposes. And very often we don't know why. But he does. Whether he reveals those things to you in time or whether you wait until you go to the other side to see what God's purposes might be, he has them. And what I can guarantee you is that your best is his central concern. It's not that God just wants to subtly improve you. He wants your absolute best. And that's what he has in mind. Number two, sometimes faith enough for bare obedience is sufficient to please God. We read in the New Testament that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Sometimes we get discouraged. We get, we get brokenhearted. It's hard to see beyond right now. And sometimes, despite all that brokenheartedness, despite all the despair and discouragement, it's enough simply to do the next right thing. And maybe if you get in a low enough spot, that can become an anthem for you. What's the next right thing? Okay? And I'm, I am not going to look past that. I'm just going to keep doing the next right thing. I don't know what it all means. I don't have explanations for grand heights of theology. And that is enough to please God when times get really tough. Number three, I want you to know that when it comes to discouragement, God's first two lines of defense are these. He wants to remind us of all the things that he's done for us, and he wants to promise us all the things he'll do for us. Here's what we want to do. We want to look at our right now and let that color the future and the past. And we start reading and reinterpreting our past because of what's going on right now. And that is not what God wants us to do. He wants us to interpret our present according to what he's done for us in the past, namely allowing his son to be crucified on our part and what he promises to do for us in the future, namely an inheritance for all eternity in the celestial city. And the life of faith is taking what God has done and what God will do and interpreting the right now in light of those two great realities. That's what God is asking his people to do in Exodus 6, and it's what he's asking Moses to do in Exodus 6, and what he's asking us to do now. When the Apostle Paul is writing 
either Romans or Ephesians or one of these great works. He's writing to people who are hurting under an emperor's thumb, being persecuted and driven. And he always starts with an extensive description of what Christ has already done for us. It's as we remember that that our present comes into clear view. Okay? Well, if you're discouraged today, perhaps this will be an encouragement for you. If you're not discouraged today, I didn't mean to discourage you. <laughs> but that's the passage that God had for us. And beginning next week, thunder is going to come. And God will stretch out his mighty arm and save his people. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to look to all the things you've done for us in the past and remember all the promises you've made for us in the future. And may we look to you to help us understand what you're doing in the here and now. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.